Today's episode of The Watch is brought to you by Google Assistant. The Google Assistant is ready to help you get more done with just your voice in the car, at home, and everywhere you take your phone. You can ask your Google Assistant to help you with routines throughout your day. Say one command, and the Assistant can do multiple things. For instance, once you've set up a morning routine in the Google Assistant app, you can just say, hey, Google, good morning. And the Assistant can take your phone off silent, adjust compatible lights and thermostats, tell you about today's weather, your commute, and what's on your calendar, and then play music or news or even play this podcast right where you left off. A little help, hands-free, just say, hey, Google, to get started. I need support staff to clear the room. Stand up and walk. Now. Hello and welcome to The Watch. My name is Chris Ryan. I am an editor at TheRinger.com and joining me in the studio, ODing off that nostalgia, it's Andy Greenwald! Buddy, our generation, we don't need a prescription <laughs> for that. We have plenty of prescriptions. We, well, that, that's also true. <laughs> Obviously, we're going to talk about the big shows that we talk about. Yeah, Watchmen and Mandalorian. Mando. Greenwald, great to see you, man. Nice to see you, buddy. Um... I was kind of ODing on nostalgia this weekend. I was back in the old storage space. Finding, Do you have one? Finding a box. We have a shed behind the house. I mean, I usually don't let guests in there unless they're... <laughs> like in the looking glass way? <laughs> Not the looking glass way, but are you familiar with Blumhouse Pictures? Yeah, I'm familiar. Do you ever watch Storage Wars? Um, no. Is, that shit Is there a Blumhouse-produced version good. of that? A, no. That's a good idea, though. Let's, but, we should erase that and pitch it. My point being, I found a big box of uh, cassette tapes. And so, well, okay, let me, let me run it back. This is where we are now, Chris, in our life, in our life cycle yes. on Earth. Parts of our life, like times we remember, are now history and are being like mined for content. <laughs> yeah. um, and so yeah. there is a document. Like the early 10s. Well, not. I mean, now we're talking like turn of the century stuff. Um, there's a documentary being made about that era, and they reached out to me for some like uh, archival materials wow. from our life as uh, music people. Uh-huh. And I was like, yeah, I might have some of those interviews. And what was funny, there's a lot of funny things about it, but one of the funny things was is that I knew I had a big box of tapes that came with me is from, it like from New York. Is it like for music stuff or do they think you have like Condoleezza Rice tapes? <laughs> no, no. Just I I I Condi and I were very very uh respectful of each other. Yeah. There were no recording devices. Okay. And uh, I knew I brought a box of cassettes from from New York when we moved, but I also clearly thought I was a completely different person. 20 years ago because I was like, and I'm sure I labeled them all after I oh finished the interviews. So it's just a bunch of blank tapes? It, they're not blank. It's just bl- blankly labeled. Yeah, it's just like 75 Maxells, <laughs> a quarter of which have like My Chemical Romance Milano 2006 scrawled across the front. <laughs> but I did, I, did find, I did find a couple uh-huh. that were, that were uh, relevant. And I found a couple that may, you know, like, when you find things, and, and, I, and I actually I hope we get to talk to Chris again soon, but when you find things that say, like, Chris Caraba, tape six. Chris just came in and did Ringer Room. I heard, yeah. and I missed it. It's terrible. but um, Tape six. Yeah. Right. There's a lot of in-depth Frost stuff on Nixon there. Frost Nixon over here. <laughs> but uh, I did find a couple things that, that I thought were notable. One was uh, a bunch of uh, DJ Green Lantern and DJ Clue tapes mm-hmm. that I 100% bought at that weird outdoor market next to Tower Records on Broadway and 8th Street. Oh, yeah. There was one yeah. tape. My mixtape, I used to like, I mean, I used to sell mixtapes at Kim's, but my mixtape spot was on 14th and 6th. Or 14th, yeah, I think 14th and 6th. I, I wonder, because there was a moment when we thought that mixtapes, and by mixtapes we mean like... Rap mixtapes. Rap mixtapes. Yeah. That somehow the internet was going to make them 
a thing, right? Like every because there was they a moment but like yeah, datpiff.com and like yeah. like rappers were releasing new tapes with remixes and things and it was like instead of having to go to Canal Street or that one kiosk in the Cherry Hill Mall that you and I frequented on occasion. Sure. They were suddenly everywhere. But then I guess it all fell off because then everything became a mixtape. Uh, there was that. There was the DJ drama arrest, which I think changed oh, right. the dynamic. That was big because you were working at the record store yeah. still then, so right? there was like a whole thing where the FBI and the RAA. Chris, did you flip of, on DJ drama? <laughs> Are we talking not, about this on this not. podcast? Why do you think I'm stuck on this podcast? Because I never flipped. <laughs> That's right. <laughs> um, I'll let you know this. Mm-hmm. On Storage Wars, there's this guy. There's a, I assume he's still on it. This dude named Dave. Rotund, but very excellent storage locker purchaser. Yeah, they they basically like they open up a bunch of storage like lockers. You can see into it for a few minutes, and then you start to bid on the items. Oh wait, no. Okay, I'm sorry to be that guy who Mm -hmm. last week needs Kaya to explain a meme to him, and this week needs you to explain a very popular long running -running television show. Yeah, Storage Wars. Is the idea here that the owners have? Been delinquent in paying Let's, for their storage? It could be that they have passed away. It could be that they oh. are delinquent. It, it could be in any number of things. But either way, a very familiar group of people come every week, every episode to bid on these things. And this guy, Dave, his style of bidding during the auctions mm-hmm. is to go, yeah, when he wants to like. <laughs> he, wa- he wants <laughs> when that? He wants, when he wants it, yeah. Do you think that we're. He's at the Rose Bowl flea market, I think. If, if my storage shed door was were to be like teasingly open mm-hmm. momentarily, and Dave just caught a whiff of the. Of Milano 6? Of the th- MCR? Of, of Milano yeah. 6, the 30 year old decaying Model United Nations certificates of commendation. <laughs> Not even like you won Model UN, but like, like. Thanks for thanks Participation for yeah. trophy to you, yeah. Spain. Is it's that who you were? Once. Have you been keeping up on Spanish politics? Oh, just, just, just slow down. <laughs> this isn't the DJ drama trial. You don't need to offer up everything in the, within the first moment. The, um, you know, seven issues of the Kid Rock covered December 1999 issue that? of Spin or whatever. I, I, I definitely have multiple copies of the issue that had my first printed piece, which was a capsule film review of the movie Stigmata starring Patricia <laughs> Arquette. <laughs> I remember that movie. That's my first ever. Uh, what's your first published byline? Uh, and I'm not. I'm get, well, you think about it. I will say. Well, that my, hit it or like the first stuff that was ever in print was in Hit or Quit at Zine, I think. Right. And then, I I think it was the Voice. Yeah, it was probably the Voice. I think it was the Voice. Village Voice. What was the piece? Do you remember? What was an early piece? What was uh, an early? What was an early mind grape? I think it was a vineyard? review of this band, Party of Helicopters. But I'm not positive. Listen. No and one, then I wrote, and then I wrote like a three hundred word review for Dolan and Spin. No one has ever caped up for anything harder than circa ninety nine two thousand. Chris Ryan caped up for a band called Party of Helicopters. Yeah, they were fucking amazing. You love that. I band. still love that band. You put them on everything. It was great. Yeah, shoegaze black metal from Kent, Ohio is everything you ever needed. Yeah, that's great. Uh, let's talk about Watchmen. Okay, you don't want to know more about more like. Oh wait, do you want to tell me more about your weekend? I think we should end. I think we should end with that because I, 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 as many people know, and many other Mommingtons and Daddingtons in our audience know, is, is Mommington where are we expanding? I feel like we should open up, open up the tent. This is your business. <laughs> what parenthood? Yeah, this is your this is your corner. I went to the movies uh, for the first time in half a year. I would say. Which, uh, what was the theater experience like? <laughs> you sound so interested. Because I knew you went at like ten a.m. Right. Yeah, I saw ten a.m. F two baby. <laughs> 10 a.m. F2 Judgment Day. Do you want to lead with this? No. You want to save it? 
I think you should save it because this is gonna. I've already I've already started this podcast with a one sided rant, and I feel like I should end it. <laughs> okay, that way too. Yep. <laughs> can we, Kaya? Can we get the Dave from Storage Wars? Soundboard? But with Chernobyl music playing over it. Yeah. <laughs> um, Kaya, do you watch Storage Wars? I think I've caught an episode of Storage Wars that's, before. That's, that's why she's Kaya, the best. Did you make mixtapes in 1999? Um, I was three, so no. Cool. Great. <laughs> um, a bracing slap of reality. <laughs> What an episode of Watchmen last night. It was great. It's tough sometimes with this show in particular because it feels like every episode of Watchmen is a very special episode of Watchmen. Yeah. Without any inside information, uh, and, I, and we are going to be speaking to Damon at some point in the, in the coming weeks, I hope, they really are leaving all, their, all of it on the table. Like, they're leaving it all on the field. And it's kind of like, it's hard to imagine another season at this sustained high fever pitch level. So I kind of do wonder whether some of the stuff that he had been saying earlier about, I'm not going to do another one of these. Like, if they want to keep doing it, God bless them. But they are really, like, going for broke here. There's nothing in it that suggests they're um, planning to make more so far. Mm -hmm. That said, you can look at it one of two ways. Um, I I was watching last night and just marveling over the depth of the story, the richness of this take on the material— the pleasure I was getting from watching it and just I, I find it I'm almost pre-frustrated that there aren't more and mm-hmm. I know that runs against almost everything I've ever argued for I think that it's far far better to leave people I was a, deeply annoyed that there are only three left is that night. really true three left yeah it's because there's nine episodes in the first season I'm oh. sure that given the way that people are responding that there will be a conversation about doing more but I think that it's better to focus on the point you're making yeah. which is um He's putting everything into this one. Mm-hmm. And I feel like not only that, I feel like he's putting everything he has to say about pop culture into this one. Yeah. And and American culture and well, American history into this one. Well, let's just— Him and, and Court—and shout out to Court Jefferson, who co-wrote last night's Great episode. Writer. And, and it, it was just uh, a tour de force, you know? I mean, it, I had had a couple of people around the office who had seen the episode already and, and were using phrases like, the best thing I've ever seen. Wow. Know? And— so did, I, did I you, know, you did you tell them about Storage Wars? I was like, there's this one where they go to Gardena. And <laughs> oh, that's a hotbed. <laughs> and they find these old rings. Mm-hmm. Go, go on. <laughs> it turns out that worth four dollars. Uh, well, you go ahead. What do you what do you, what do you think? Well, I, I mean, I just think what's amazing about this. What you're talking about saying everything there's to say about it. In episode six of the perhaps only season of Watchmen, Damon, with the help of amazing collaborators, obviously the actors, director Stephen Williams, who did a phenomenal, phenomenal job. This was one of the best directed hours of TV I've seen in a long time. And and Cord Jefferson, who wrote it with Damon, just sort of casually, dirt off your shoulder, reinvented the American superhero and what it would mean to be a superhero. And I'll I'll say this, um, not to make this Daddington Corner again, but... Uh, my older daughter is very interested in superheroes and comic books mm-hmm. and often asks me to tell her the real story of Spider-Man. Of Justice? Or so, well, <laughs> that's going to get dicey. No, but like the real, real story of Batman or Spider-Man oh, or yeah. whatever. Like the origin stories, you know, who, tell me about, so Peter Parker, what happened? Why, why, you know, what, what, how did the robber kill his Uncle Ben? I'm like, well, this is getting. Does she actually ask those kinds of questions? She does. Um, and she wanted to know about, about Superman. And I actually, before seeing this episode of Watchmen, was, was, I was like, she's older now. Like, maybe we can discuss things like 
uh, metaphor, you know, or, or the larger context behind it, because she was also reading some books that were dealing with heavier themes of, about World War II. And, and like, a, she has a story about a, a girl in France during the occupation who hid a Jewish girl in the house. And so she's understanding a lot of this stuff. And I was saying, you know, one of the interesting things about Superman is who the people who made Superman mm-hmm. in the moment that Superman was created. And Superman was created by, uh, by two Jewish men in the shadow of World War II and Nazism and the idea of being, of being forced to flee a place that was going to be destroyed and carrying with you certain knowledge or power abilities that had to be hidden, but also the promise of America and being reinvented in America and the heartland and being loved there and appreciated, but still having to live a double life and blah, blah, blah. And that's, for me, that's one of the most interesting things about the, the myth of Superman, and that's built into it. So you take those ideas that a lot of the early superheroes were created by post-World War II, um, often Jewish creators, and then taking it. So, and so Damon looks at this and says, well, in, in 2019, what, what, what do we want to say about this? Mm-hmm. And the idea of someone, why would you need to put on a mask to beat up bad guys? It's because you, people couldn't handle who you really were. Right. Um, and it's so simple. And obviously, it was foreshadowed in the Bass Reeves stuff in the, the, the first, first episode. episode yeah. But... The thing that I marvel over with the show in general is it's so naughty and it's so dense and it's so complicated. And I don't just mean the story itself and I don't, and I don't just mean the ways that he and his collaborators have chosen to tell the story uh, across these nine episodes. But obviously the subject matter itself is so outrageously uh, loaded and heavy. Yeah. But there was – when it comes right down to it, and this is the, this is the marvel of the show to me, uh, no pun intended whatsoever – is that at the end of it, after the end of watching this episode, it felt elegant and simple. And it was there all along. And I think that that's a testament to really remarkable writing for the screen. Yeah. I look at these episodes as essentially essays. You know, essays on a variety of topics, whether they're about, um, you know, uh, whether or not they're about national uh, national shame and trauma or, or they're about, you know, origin stories and what how we get shaped by the things that are around us and and also riffs and essays about like our obsession with superheroes, our obsession with comic books, our obsessions with building out stories to replace reality. All these things that we that we that are are really in the front of our t- minds right now. And you can get away with that kind of writing and that kind of work when you have characters and writing and performances that are this personable and this humane. Mm-hmm. And even throughout a very complicated convoluted sort of set up throughout this last episode, you still have these incredibly human performances by Giovanni Depo and, and, and Regina King and everybody else who is in the episode. Mm-hmm. So I'm just really impressed with the way that they managed to balance the left brain, right brain stuff. Yeah. You know, and that's, that's one of the hardest things to do. I think you can get really lost in the sauce when you're like out there and you're just like, here's like, I really want to like subvert I really want to surprise and shock, but it's still like a very affecting story. It's still a really affecting story. Think about, I mean, this episode was what? It was 50-some minutes. Mm-hmm. Um, what, what I think of when I watch it is all of the decisions made. I mean, on a, very, on a larger level, like how are you going to tell the story? Which memories are you going to choose to highlight? Because obviously you're dealing with the memory pills of a man who is well over 100 years old. So there are decades not addressed. Um, so you, you have to pick your spots there. You have to pick how you want to bring in the current circumstances, how much time to give to Lori uh, shouting at her or mm-hmm. Cal reading a letter or whatever happens at the end with Lady True. And then you also have to decide which I, – I'm just – I'm marveling over, for example, 
the reveal that his wife um, is the baby is the baby who is rescued swaddling an American flag swaddled yeah. an American flag and because of that there's left it doesn't need to be said all the levels of connection between these two people these two orphans from this horrific massacre and that in and of itself is enough but then if you keep poking at it and you consider it in the light of other aspects of the story the fact that he is closeted mm-hmm that he is also pursuing he's he's pursu- he's wearing a number of masks let's say throughout his life and throughout the episode what happens to their relationship like you can look at it all of it as a straight line story he can't can't stop beating up people so she leaves but also what is the trauma that bound them together originally what is the rela- what is the what connects them going forward and how tenable is that there are all these levels to each relationship the commanding officer the commanding black officer who shakes his hand after the other one doesn't is based on a real historical figure, the first black man to achieve the, that rank in the NYPD. So again, we have this, this overlapping narrative of true and not true, mm-hmm. and not in a way to say one is better than the other, but to say like the, the truth is in some ways uh, highlighted or cast in a different light with the strength of the what if surrounding it. All the time put into dreaming up a enormous comic bookie, mm-hmm. if one can even say that, conspiracy theory involving uh, an evil enterprise with Cyclops. code words, Cyclops, yeah. but it's actually the Klan. Yeah. It, there's real evil behind that, the that was, evil. I think that was one of my favorite parts was what the the turn when, uh, when my, Captain Metropolis mm-hmm. interrupts Hood of Justice at the press conference to be like, we're going to go fight the Moloch with his sun ray that's yeah. going to, you know, because that sounds fantastical, mm-hmm. as does... The idea that there's a secret cabal of of guys who are mesmerizing the black communities mm-hmm. in these different cities, but is it any less fantastical than people riding around on horses in white hoods mm-hmm. or or cops, you know, protecting racists in the streets of New York City? I wanted to share. There's a tweet Victor Luckerson who who used to work at the Ringer uh, and has written a lot about the Black Wall Street massacre. He had a couple of tweets last night that I wanted to share. One was. Watchmen has become a pretty fascinating commentary on the muddled ground between history and mythology. Watching it feels like being online and trying to figure out what really happened during a major historical event. The pop cultural ephemera and the facts have fused into one. Mm-hmm. And that's what that that whole Captain Metropolis, uh, Moloch, Cyclops, KKK, the, that sort of melange of, of like, is this real? This isn't real. This is sci-fi, mm-hmm. but isn't this crazier than sci-fi? Mm-hmm. I really thought that's where this episode was at its best in a lot of ways. And I think for people who continue to think that this show isn't worthy of the mantle of the comic book Watchmen or of Alan Moore's idea, I mean, to me, one of the most profoundly fascinating things, and I think the thing that that radically changed my imagination and the imagination of many people who went on to make comic books, let alone read them, is this idea of what are we doing punching people in masks, punching other people in masks when there is real evil? And so the, 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 one of the most radical questions asked in the original Watchmen, or, or at least uh, scenarios presented, is that if there was someone who was truly superhuman, mm-hmm. you could just use him to stop a war. Mm-hmm. You know, you could just send— Or start do- one. Yeah, you could send Dr. Manhattan to Vietnam, and then that's over. Mm-hmm. Um, the, the, real, the, the idea of this power being real and then put towards real politic is truly terrifying and fascinating, right? And so that's what this episode— was that's the mantle this episode is picking up on to me, which is why are these people with masks just punching other people with masks? Why aren't they punching the the rot that exists in everyone for real, the mm-hmm. true evil? 
right, which is this systemic racism. I mean, there are many other evils to punch at. This is the one that the show is focusing on with 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 a really, really fascinating level of um, clarity and curiosity. Yeah, and and then you're, you're talking about it as whether or not it's a true adaptation or whether or not it, it sort of is working in concert with the original text. The original text itself was such an, a, um, a crazy grab bag of all these different um, source materials. Mm-hmm. You know, like the Black Freighter, uh, the pirate story that's in it, the um, uh, a lot of the stuff, like the journals of Rorschach. Like, it itself was an intertextual piece of pop culture anyway. So to watch Damon sort of play around in that same way with uh, black and white silent films, newspaper headlines... Um, gossip, but also using different genres like, like you know, 1930s crime movies and, you know, westerns and all mm-hmm. this. I mean, it's just, it's it's virtuoso stuff. And let's talk about, let's also pay attention to some of the subtle choices that were made that I think are really clever too. Like the show within the show, the Minutemen. The, yeah, right. Uh, A real American hero or American yeah, the, hero story. The yeah. anthology style show that everybody's watching based on this. Um Again, this a line isn't drawn around this, but if you think about it, it's pretty interesting and, and significant that on this version of a TV show that exists in Watchmen's 2019, um, people can handle seeing their quote-unquote heroes taken off the pedestal, right? Mm-hmm. They can handle imagining um, these pillars of their American imagination be shown as hyper-violent, be shown as uh, sexual beings. Um, you know, in, in this episode anyway, be seen as, as someone who uh, is provoked, but mm-hmm. kills federal agents interrogating him, right? But the one thing that the audiences wouldn't be able to handle would would be if that hero was a black man. Sure. Everything else is on the table except race in the show within the show, which is significant for the show we're actually watching. No, and, and, and then when you introduce the idea of sexuality into that, that's yet another taboo at that time and even still today mm-hmm. of, of the idea of like... You know, we we say secret identity so often in conjunction with superhero movies that they or superhero culture that loses its sort of mm-hmm. meaning of what we're talking about. But we're talking about these layers of personhood that you have because you can't show your real self to the whole world. It, it's without going too far off topic, but that is one of the more interesting things as superhero stories have become mainstream stories mm-hmm. and become mainstream culture. There, there is a version of superhero fandom that has raged uh, a battle. I mean, that's a grandiose word, but we're talking about a grandiose medium that is waged within fandom, basically, who has the rights to these characters. And, you know, for as much as people can uh, ascribe very regressive points of view to diehard fanboys or whatever you want to call them, you know, people who are mad about representation or mad about um, diversity in the comic books, uh, it's a real battleground because... And a large, large, large part of the American comic book audience are people from marginalized groups mm-hmm. who have found strength in the dominant metaphor of living double lives, of being hidden, of being misunderstood. One of the most appealing parts of the X-Men franchise, for example, was the idea that it was a large metaphor for being gay. Mm-hmm. And I think that other people from other communities probably felt claim to that story as well, the people who are hated and feared for what they are. Um and now, you know, seeing that quote-unquote battle play out in a different way um, on a much larger stage where a movie like Captain Marvel, for example, is a political document even before it's released sure. where people are trying to sink it on Rotten Tomatoes just because they don't want it to exist. Right. Um, 
this is the rare and and that's it. And I'm not saying Marvel should have handled anything differently, but Marvel and Disney try to stay out of that. We're just making a good movie for everybody. You know, they know what they're doing behind yeah. the scenes, and right. I appreciate often a lot of what they're doing. But they don't wade into that, that this is one way is better than the other way. They just try to present the movie and then try to try to white-knuckle it through whatever online controversy may erupt. Damon sets the controls of Watchmen for the heart of the sun, right? Uh It is about that while doing the very thing. Yeah, yeah. And I think even to some extent, I think that the last couple of episodes, while they'll obviously still be about a lot of the, the themes and topics that have been brought up before— I was kind of thinking about this as last night ended, so where you feel like you know so much about Will and you know so much about the way that this all started in a lot of ways and the way in which it has roots in earlier times and different kinds of heroes. But, you know, we still don't know. We don't know about clones. We don't know about the technology behind nostalgia pills or mm-hmm. what's, what Vite's trying to do and, and what Lady True is trying to do and all this stuff. And there's three hours left. And it's like, in all likelihood, we're not going to have answers, quote unquote, to a lot of the things that we think we deserve answers to, which is sort of always the dice roll with Damon's stuff, which I love. I love yeah. the I love the, the action that comes with that. You know, it's like it really feels very lively. And, it, and, and, and I think that he's gotten, he's backed himself into corners on other shows when that's happened. But I don't feel that on this one. I don't feel that. There's something that we've gotten away from. Uh, I don't need a separate episode explaining how no. Redford kept winning the presidency. But like, as culture has become more on demand, yeah, um, in all ways, we've really gotten away from one of the central. I'm gonna I'm gonna get grandiose. It's Monday morning, but one of the central premises or tenets of what makes great art. A great artist is to me is the person who asks the best questions. It's not the person who answers the questions. It's the person who asks the best questions, the most provocative, the most fascinating, that echo questions that maybe you've had in your head but haven't, put word, you know, haven't been able to put words behind. And if Damon walks away from this after nine episodes and he finishes as strong as it's not just started but has maintained, mm-hmm. um, then I would say this is probably the greatest distillation of his gift to date. Because The Leftovers was becoming, you know, over the course of its three seasons, I think became more and more comfortable with being a show about humanity and emotion loss grief and loss yeah. and grief and open-ended unanswerable questions it was about death and mm-hmm. life and you can't answer those and now he went right towards it and at the end it you know it, it ended in this beautiful ambiguity but it did it over three seasons so if he if he does it, all of this and asks all these questions and walks away i think that's really an incredible place to to have reached after the career that he's had i still maintain to me watching leftovers Leftovers felt like a show about loss and grief that started as a concept about what would happen if all these people disappeared. Yes. And I always felt like in some ways those two ideas were at odds. I felt like— Where it started is very different from where it ended up. Not even, it's not even that. It's not even that I wanted to know more about government agencies that were doing stuff with bodies and stuff, like with things that were alluded to in the first season of that show. It's more that I think that what he was really interested in was this very human universal idea, and he had— done it through this gotten in the guy under the guise of it's about what would happen what would really happen mm-hmm. if all these people disappeared but it wasn't it was about what if people could live through their grief and live out their grief in these exotic ways because of this slightly altered reality mm-hmm. that we had i don't feel any of the skin itchiness 
in the in Watchmen that I did in Leftovers, mm-hmm. where I felt like the people making Left Leftovers sometimes wanted to be making a different show mm. or not have to be responsible for tying the tying up the loose ends of their own work. Watchmen, I feel like, is an obvious and complete and total like it was. It's the perfect vehicle for the things that Damon and his his team wanted to say. Well, I, I also think it's a difference between do you want to buy a piece of land and build a home from scratch or do you want a gut job? Do you want a reno job? Mm-hmm. Do, you, do you see the bones? And you're like, well, this could be something great. And I think that there is, and, I, and I'm sure Damon, he's been very clear about this with other interviews and public statements, and I'm sure he'll repeat it with us as well, that this was not fun for him. Mm-hmm. He does not seem to have enjoyed this so much and feels very stressed out by it. But I am curious whether on some level this was more freeing because the mythology the big, big load-bearing beams were, were already there. It's also a, an obviously much more fun show to make in some ways. It seems like it yeah. would be. I don't, none of his public statements have reflected that. Um, but, you know, I was, all of this conversation for me is a little bit through the prism of, and I know this sounds ridiculous, but I was listening to uh, the voice that begins our podcast every week, Edward Norton, yeah. on Mark Marin. I don't know if you've listened to this interview. I've listened to several Edward Norton interviews. I haven't gotten to the marathon. They are he, he voluminous. Made, he made the rounds. He made the rounds. Yeah. He is not— Edward uh, Norton, come on the watch. He is not— uh, He's probably like outside right now. Like, sure. He, he definitely has a lot to say. Yeah. He has thoughts on many topics. And, you know, within 10 minutes of sitting down with Mark Maron, he's talking about the, ever, the, the everlasting genius of Bob Dylan in the 60s. You know, it just, of course, mm-hmm. that's where you go to. But I appreciated what he was talking about because to hear him say something that is sort of, if, if you pay, you know, if you care about pop culture or music or whatever, you know this kind of, but then you think about it in terms of the present moment. And what he's talking about is the way Bob Dylan played the press from the beginning. Yes. And refused to play games and basically refused to answer questions about his work. Made that a game into itself. Made yeah. it a game into itself. But, but, but how, you know that actually feels even stronger and braver now when there are, you know, to a factor of one million percent more media outlets and demands on one's time. When, you know, and I say this as someone as the beneficiary of it, both as a critic and as a recapper, and then for us as a podcaster, of having artists come explain their work to us and talk about their work. You know, there, there is something pretty powerful in saying, um, I did my job with it. Yeah. You take it. Yeah. What do you mean, what do I want to say about it? I said it. You know, and then when you get into like, you know, more collaborative mediums and things like TV, like obviously other people had says in things and it's hard to make it a unified voice uh, as opposed to one guy with a guitar in 1968. But there is power in that. And it's interesting to think, think back to that and to think of even, you know, my reaction to the Watchmen through that, through that lens. Just has Watchmen, the show changed your relationship to the, to the graphic novel? It's made me want to pick it up again. I mean, I haven't, I intentionally didn't. It's sitting on the shelf right in the same room in, where, in I, yeah. where I watch the show. And I keep thinking about referencing it, mainly, you know, to, to show my wife, like, all the cool references that I remember <laughs> and how cool it is to know a lot about 35-year-old comic books. I yeah. think she'd be – but I'm kind of waiting for date night to do that. Sure. Yeah, like, of I'll, course. I'll, like, maybe, maybe, like, at a really nice candlelit restaurant. And yeah. you're like, Garcon, I'm just going to turn my iPhone flashlight like, on I, so I, that I can read my wife. I didn't some- use it for the menu. Because I know we wanted the whole fish, and we're just going to share that. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, but I would like to point out that Moloch, the Magnificent or whatever, is is real. Mm-hmm. This idea that it's real. 
Oh, you think that was invented for the show that you were grudgingly watching with me on the couch? I know. No, no, milady. <laughs> All this real. very cool man named Alan Moore. Yeah. So he's kind of a warlock. <laughs> but he supports labor. He does. He does. Uh, anyway, uh, no, but, I, but I, I, I would like, I think that I probably will read it after, which is kind of a great inverse relationship I yeah. think, with, with the material. I, w- I will go back to it. Um, you know, there, there's one, one other co- quick comment about this. And again, like I, I think I already talked about, I thought the direction was brilliant. The performances are brilliant. Just the way the camera moved and moved us through the story. Um, I was thinking about the thought that went into every shot, but also the time and resources they had to make it. I was thinking about it with, you know, I was with awe and jealousy, of course, um, you mentioned all the things that are that that Watchmen deals with that are relevant to our present moment, and the one other one that we hadn't mentioned was just violence. Mm-hmm. And I, I, I'm not a not the biggest fan mm-hmm. of violence. I'm not the biggest fan of like you know cascading rivers of blood flying from people's mouths after they've been punched. I think that the show has given a lot of thought to how it portrays. Very much so. Physical violence. Yeah, the the violence in American Hero Story is different than the violence that. Hooded Justice is actually doling out when he's ro- he, rolling through New York City. When he That's sh- closer to John Wick, The Raid, and then the, the TV show version of it is actually closer to, like, Zack Snyder. Yes, it, when he, when we finally get to the market that was in the TV show, and in this case, we now we learn Will Hooded Justice was breaking up a clan meeting mm-hmm. in the back, and the owner of the shop isn't a grateful uh, citizen. He is... Part of this Cyclops. Part of this Cyclops conspiracy breaking through the glass isn't throwing a thug through the window. It's uh, it's our hero trying to escape and running himself. When he shoots people, as he does at the end, he doesn't have a pithy one liner. He doesn't tell the people, you know, ju- he doesn't have a, he doesn't tell them that they've, they've, they've justice has been served mm-hmm. or whatever. He shoots them quickly, awfully, point, yeah. almost point blank, and some of them have time to scream out no before they die. And I, I appreciate that in a subtle way, the show is asking us to consider th- our emotional reaction to violence sure. in media, especially when it's quote unquote just. And yeah. When it, and vengeance and, and yeah, exactly. I also, I also thought it was interesting how uh, in the American hero story, everybody is such a um, caricature. Like, even the FBI agents mm-hmm. who were like, oh, you know what I'm saying? H.J. H.J. Yeah, and then he's like, you know, say cheese. It's like all that stuff is just, like, so note perfect in terms of how it's... <laughs> like, my guy was being interrogated by Francesca and Mad Dog. I know. <laughs> it's amazing. Dog! <laughs> it was sexual stuff. Gettleman should be fired! Uh, you almost stood up on that. I like it. Let's move on to Mandalorian. Yeah. Interesting thing happened to me this weekend. Uh-oh. So... I get up on Saturday, Mm -hmm. and I watch some sports. Yeah. And then I say to my wife. You love sports. My lovely wife. Mm -hmm. And I say, I got to take care of some stuff I need to watch for the pod. Was she she just like riveted by college football? Was she annoyed about this? She had already painted her face, you know, for uh, the Auburn game. No, she she was like, what are you going to watch? And I'm way ahead of her on Crown. She's going to watch it with her mom. So she was like, go ahead and finish it. By and the way, you're way ahead of me on Crown, too, in like case you're wondering. three seasons? Uh-huh. <laughs> um, did you ever watch that show? Nope. Yeah. Uh, and then I was like, and I'm going to watch Mandalorian. And she made a face that was just kind of like... Was it a cute baby Yoda face? Mm, but that, that's an important joke. She just made a face that was just kind of like, 
I thought I'd be in a better spot right now. <laughs> did she make a face like, uh, oh, God, I want to make a crown Things joke. didn't quite work out did for me the, the way I thought they like would. That princess... I'm married to a guy on a Saturday is like, it's time to watch The Mandalorian. Was it like Princess Beatrice's face the day that I, Duke, I don't know any of these characters. <laughs> steady on, because there's some steady on. some rough spots in the royal family right now. <laughs> there sure are. Imagine getting fired from your job as someone's son. <laughs> that is so <laughs> nuts. She was like, my son, come meet me in my office. Slash you the are castle. the weakest link. Goodbye. <laughs> Goodbye. You are no longer employed yeah. by this family as our son. So I go in and I say to my wife, I'm going to watch that. And she's like, that's not for me. Or something to that effect. Mm-hmm. And did, I go did, watch did it. Did she say it in the common tongue? Or did she say it in No, she was just of... like, have fun. Yeah. And I came back in and then like like a couple hours go by. And then some, like at one point I mentioned to her, you know, Baby Yoda's pretty cute. Uh-huh. And I would say that my wife went from not only not caring about the Mandalorian mm-hmm. to openly deriding the Mandalorian mm-hmm. to our bedroom being in, turned into a war room for Baby Yoda memes. Stop it. Like, we rewatched. First of all, I now primarily understand this show through a self-made supercut of only Baby Yoda moments. I have rewatched the scene with her oh, no. where Baby Yoda's wobbling around picking up frogs with Nick Nolte. Yeah. By Eat the way, it, by the way like, say, say that sentence again just for future generations. Just put it in a, on a cassette tape and put it in your shed. Yeah. So that when Dave from Storage Wars finds this in 100 <laughs> years, when Gardena is the capital of the world. Uh-huh. I have seen so much fucking Baby Yoda content this 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 weekend. Like, Amanda and Mallory have been sending sending memes over all the ones with like baby Yoda's sitting in the car and the sign says like I'm I the air, AC is on I have plenty of water and I'm listening to my favorite music <laughs> and baby Yoda's in there this this guy it's it's now overtaken the show the the one where it's the one where he's standing and looking up and it says me when I walk into CVS high and catch myself on the security cam yeah. <laughs> <laughs> sometimes when I'm low I think about that and I laugh um, yeah, so it was just like, it was like three screens. Yeah. It was definitely a Corey Stoll <laughs> in the Bourne identity just being like, I found Jason Bourne! He's in Vienna! You know, It's like, very good for our pod that that's our favorite and just go-to Corey Stoll performance. <laughs> <laughs> but that being said, I think it's worth noting that I've been, I've been a little bit of a crank about this show. Yeah. And people some, some have noticed my flip-flopping. Some have noticed that I started to soften on Thursday's somewhat abrupt conversation about Mandalorian, which was essentially like the, the topic of which was, do you know anyone else who's watching The Mandalorian and do they like it? Yeah. Episode three slapped. I just want to officially <laughs> note the moment that you became the Lindsey Graham of The Mandalorian. <laughs> like three weeks Fuck ago on this God. podcast, Chris was like, if we give The Mandalorian the belt, we will be destroyed and we will deserve it. Now, three years later, you're like, can I go golfing with Baby Yoda, please? Wouldn't you watch that? <laughs> yeah, I would. Also, probably Baby Yoda could fix my fucking slice. Listen, <laughs> he probably could. Um, I, I Listen, there are different degrees of flip-flopping because I came into this and we watched the pilot and I was like, okay, I guess it's going to be about— You're like, this about, is weird, dude. I was like, it's going to be yeah. about money. No, it's just going to be this quiet show— about a faceless man's love 
for a cute puppet. Here's here's exactly what happened. And I'm super into it. Oh, here comes Chris's patented Mando recap. Kaya, drop the Chernobyl music. Yeah. Mando gets back in town. Sure does. Drops the baby Yoda bag mm-hmm. with Werner. Mm-hmm. Guaps up. Mm-hmm. Goes to Jacob the jeweler. Mm-hmm. Gets a new bracelet. <laughs> argues with some bros. Turns down an offer of spa treatment from Apollo Creed. Mm-hmm. Has a second thoughts. Rescues Baby Yoda, reenacts the professional's train scene, has jetpack envy, bounces. What if Deborah you, Chow, pick up your reward on the way out. You missed the part where Carl, Carl Weathers offers him a chance to go get uh, take out calamari on a faraway planet. That's what I'm saying. That's his one. No, not, not the spot treatment when they're like, go get Admiral Akbar's not oh, his yeah, cute right, son. Right, right. And right. meta commentary, they're like, baby Akbar is not what we're here for. That's right. <laughs> Give me that pure, uncut. No, no kitty, no, no, no kitty medicine cut in with it. Just pure baby Yoda. That's right. No baby laxative in your baby Yoda. Um, Black tar Yoda. Absolutely. <laughs> just, just tie me off, you know? Like, let's just Fucking go. Mark Renton in the corner of a, a Glasgow apartment. I think that that's why we were uncomfortable with the show. Because our generation, our OK Soda generation is like, well, what's the problem here? Like, what's the half-assed version? We're just like, no. Yeah. You will experience pure joy. Drop the hammer. Yeah. Great. It's re- like watching my wife see Baby Yoda for the first time was, was Leonardo DiCaprio smoking crack in Wolf of Wall Street. <laughs> it's like, I can't do that. That's, I can't. And. And, and I'm Jonah Hill. I'm like, smoke fucking crack with me, bro. And Leo takes the hit and he goes, oh. <laughs> Except if Jonah Hill for the first hour of the movie was like, I don't like crack. <laughs> crack will destroy us all. I was, if, I, if he was like, this crack is okay, I just thought it was going to be better. Right. Yeah. <laughs> oh, I see. Yeah. This wasn't the crack you were looking for. Um, Did you like this episode? I loved it. I really, I have nothing interesting to say except that I find this to be a very, very enjoyable TV show to watch. Yeah. And it's fun and I look forward to it. And I was, I was sad when it was over. I only had, I had, uh, the Baby Yoda note for me, the thing that really elevated Baby Yoda this week was. He slept most of this week. Yeah, but the mo- first of all, I can relate. Load the, management. The moment, the moment when the wind was rustling his Baby Yoda ears. Yeah, <laughs> my wife loved that. And I, 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 we could keep joking about it, but I do think Baby Yoda isn't the only vehicle to communicate wonder. But how about the Baby Yoda stroller? If we're talking vehicles that communicate wonder, well, I bet you wish you had one of those. That was a fucking. What, what's that? What's that famous poem about the saddest words ever written? Baby shoes for sale, never worn. Oh yeah, for sale, <laughs> cracked Baby Yoda stroller. <laughs> You couldn't find any other use for a floating storage vessel. Like all my all my tapes could be in that. I could be walking around with Green Lantern and like Gerard Way and Milan tapes all the time. DJ Who Kid number ninety two. Trying to grasp some seriousness here, just to say that if you felt the sensory experience of like giant spaceships in this place. Mm-hmm. And they were communicated to us through the adorable rustling ears of and Baby Deborah Yoda. And Deborah Chow shooting a but, lot of this episode from the perspective of Baby Yoda. Yeah, that takes years to learn how to shoot from that perspective. No, she did an amazing job. But here's my but but again, there there is a simplicity that is achieved with the show that I think in the first episode I was racing past. Mm-hmm. This can't be all there is. But, oh, if you choose to work in a minimalist style, and it's funny to say minimalist for a show that costs hundreds of millions of dollars to make and is playing with the biggest IP the world has previously, you know, at one point was the biggest IP the world had ever known. But your recaps are doing it justice. 
because it's just, no, I have some regrets. I'm going to have to go on a big fight scene now. Great. Mm-hmm. There's, I only had one thing that I, 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 I wish to be the case. You wish there was more clone doctor. I wish That's there were I wish. fewer, fewer Mandalorians. Okay. It's called The Mandalorian, dog, not The Mandalorian. Well, you're not expected to know the dating history of all those guys. Like, what are you worried about? You don't know their, like, I didn't <laughs> their wa- true shooting percentage? I just liked that he was the only one that was walking around. Uh-huh. I didn't like that he was part of some weird cult that said, like, this is the way. Like, I just want it to be the one dude. Like, lone wolf Would and Would you prefer cub. more if they were, like, blessed be the fruit? <laughs> <laughs> Is the fruit those roasted rat kids? Would you prefer like, more if they were like clear eyes, full hearts, can't lose? Okay. Are we workshopping? I'm just saying like these catchphrases are in the. The catchphrase isn't the problem. Once again, Lindsay, you are mistaken. <laughs> <laughs> I know the voters of South Carolina believe in your mission. They're just like I, I love Joe Biden. <laughs> but, <laughs> reader, he didn't. Next week, I'm going to do the the Mandalorian recap as Lindsey Graham. That's going to be fantastic content. <laughs> I will not be here for that, but I'm sure Amanda will love it. She'll get all the references and myths and be down to play. Maybe now that he's flying away and he's being hunted, there's a different piece of it. And maybe the feeling was that we needed to, you know, teach us, teach the audience something about Mandalorian culture, <laughs> which seems not super cool, if I'm being honest with you. <laughs> like, well, they've been through a lot of trauma. Have they? Yeah. We all wear armor. We they don't had show a purge. our faces. They had a purge. There was like, they're like, get this fucking, this, these coins out of here, dude. I mean, it's weird that both shows that we're talking about feature our character having like, our hooded character having uh, stressful flashbacks to what happened when they were a baby. Yeah. And it's like, well, one actually happened more or less. Yeah. And one is like space people running from robots, but okay. Um, it just, it's there to illustrate his trepidation about droid drivers. All right, Senator. <laughs> I'm just saying, I'm just saying I wanted him to be a little bit more isolated and maybe he will be now that he's flying away with a giant bounty on his head. I mean, the great scene was when everybody's little pagers went off beeping 911. That was fucking, that ruled. That was a cool scene. Also, my favorite scene was uh, Carl Weathers' least subtle bounty hunter guy ever. Mando! (laughs) They all tried to do it! But only you could do it. This is like, what is this? This is, first of all, forget bounty hunting. Mm-hmm. Don't be that guy at the bar. Yeah. Andy! <laughs> the Eagles cannot generate enough offense to beat the Patriots. <laughs> that ac- Sit with me, sir. That actually happened in 2004. <laughs> Numerous times. But, uh. Yeah, it's a big performance. It's a, it's a big... Do you have notes? No, I mean, what am I going to tell fucking Carl Weathers? He got his arm ripped off by the Predator. He I'm, sure I'm did. just glad he's he's working. He's working. And, you know, the money stopped the phaser or the laser, yeah, or whatever it was. That's a metaphor. That, that makes you think. He should have smelted his money, <laughs> just like my man Mando. Um, What's up with that? Yeah. They don't... They can't make their shit out of anything else but that specific... I mean, is it... it they make all their stuff out of Beskar, Right. Okay, is that what that is? But then, like, is by he, the way, I don't know what that is. But they kept saying that word. <laughs> and then, is he broke after that? Because it's like he's wearing. His I'm shit. wearing what I like. So it's like it's like putting all your money into a, a gold rope chain. It's like if you showed up to record this podcast with a brand new burgundy jacket made out of like direct deposit pay stubs. Uh huh. That's so what I'd it's be like. like I'd be like, but and also that that jacket could do podcasts for me. <laughs> wait, wait. What? Well, because he gets it has like a usefulness to it because you could fight like a mudhorn and live. Listen, there's utility to looking as fly as you do. 
there's value to it. Kaya will co-sign that. Okay, so we fought the so fought the mudhorn. I, I guess you're still having a little bit of a hard time being a 42 year old man who's like mudhorns and Beskar and, and Mandalorian. Maybe if I watched as much college football as you, I would feel more comfortable with these terms of fandom. I, the show's no. What I'm saying is, I'm a 42 year old man who's like this show is great. I'm really enjoying <laughs> yeah. it, and I can enjoy it not knowing what Beskar is. Right. Right. I'm glad the Mudhorn, a creature with a horn that lives in mud, is simply named. <laughs> yeah. That's cool. Yeah. That is really steering into the skid because <laughs> 70% of the audience members would be like, what's up with that Mudhorn? Right. And in a different version, fandom would be like, oh, no. There's a bunch of stuff like you don't even know unless you watch on closed captioning. Oh. Okay. real. You want to unwrap this for like, me? I, the Nick Nolte character is not named Nick Nolte. Okay. It's like unk unk or that- something like that. That's cool. <laughs> That's. I'm sure there are young people in this world who call Nick Nolte unk People unk. who are listening to this think we are fucking idiots right now. What? That started years ago. <laughs> and yet they're still listening. So who's the joke on? I'm just saying. Lindsey Graham. It's on Senator Lindsey Graham. Look, this show's fun. It, it is. Every episode ends with his spaceship flying away. This is like way more like Star Trek than I thought it was going to be. And as I got my brain around that, and I was like, okay, this is, you know, we talk about like, Watchmen putting all of it on the table, leaving it all in the field immediately, like not having other tricks left in the bag. Like this is the opposite of that. This is like every week we're going to move three feet. But but also, in, and this is a testament to the thought that went into this mm-hmm. by the Lucasfilm Brain Trust, the Disney people, or Favreau himself. Think about what you're doing when you make it a TV show. And I think that not not using Galaxy Brain, my thought, and maybe yours too and other people's, was that that would mean adapting the Star Wars world into a TV medium, meaning on a very practical level, during the course of a season of The Mandalorian, there would be three or four standing sets. And The Mandalorian would be moving within certain spaces to, you know, limit production costs or to, to you know, take advantage of tax credits or whatever usually goes into making a season of television. Thanks to those LED screens, which I do understand and could explain to you in detail, but I'm we're sure. almost out of time. Yeah, I know. I, unfortunately. <laughs> Kai is tapping her foot. Sorry about that. Um, <laughs> they're not doing that. Clearly – the version of the show that existed for the first three episodes where you go visit Nick Nolte Planet, where you keep going to the Carl Weathers la- not inside Mando! voice bar. Is that you in the back? <laughs> it's not anymore. I've saved a seat for you in my booth. My bounty hunter booth. He's gone. I have all this money now. <laughs> Talk about the spa treatments more. Um, you seem tired. Would you like to go to a spa day with me? Deep tissue, Swedish tie, whatever you desire, sir. Never Ever take your take a work colleague up on that offer. That is just good advice ever in any context. Yeah. It's going to go somewhere else because it can. And so I think that that's, again, taking full advantage of what they can do as Lucasfilm, as Star Wars or whatever. But it's making a version of the TV show that is not limited to what I thought it would be as a TV show. And I'm enjoying that. Finally. Oh, go ahead. Uh, we need Daddington music now. It's become so popular. Congratulations. Chernobyl music. Is there a limit to how many times we can invoke Chernobyl when it comes to fatherhood? And- when we, when we, when I see it and I realize the folly of my ways, because I'd figured it's just a fun watch. I don't really know the details Chernobyl's? of it. Yeah, I don't think so. No, is that wrong? Am <laughs> it's, I? It's not. Oh, hold on, I'm getting word in my ear. <laughs> no, I'm hearing it's not a fun watch. A lot, a lot of people's skin fall off. Okay, well, <laughs> you know, parenthood. <laughs> is challenging in its own ways. Um, I did uh, go to. I, I went to the cinema. Mm-hmm. I went to the 10 a.m. screening of Frozen 2. 
I was there. I was like, Andy! <laughs> You were, Are you here to see Frozen 2 like I am? What was funny is that the... They I am here to see Bong Joon-ho's Parasite for the say. third time. They don't change the marquee. It's like weird that it's the same place that in a few hours we'll be playing Parasite. Is it New Beverly? Where'd you go to see it? <laughs> we, went to, we, went to an, we went to the Alamo Draft House. <laughs> it was super cool. You got your daughters a... Got a couple of, got a couple of uh, IPAs. Sour beers. Mm-hmm. Some, some sours early in the morning. Get that juice hunt on. The juice wolves were howling, my friend Mando. <laughs> Early in the day. Um, Mando, it's Pliny the Elder. A very rare IPA, sir. <laughs> People's levels are just popping. <laughs> this is every day for me. Um, how's, it, how's it going back there, Kai? Are you enjoying yourself? I'm having a great time. Thank you. <laughs> Kai is once again on uh, ZipRecruiter. <laughs> Our spon- not They don't sponsor our podcast, just, but they she, allow... All, her only filter on ZipRecruiter is... I just don't want any more yelling. I just, please stop yelling. Just please stop shouting in my ears. Um, I, I, I just, what was, I, what, what do you want to know about this experience, this 10 a.m. experience? It was. I uh, would never dare tell you what to tell me. Yeah. It was, it, it went, first of all, I want to say. You, went, you had a lot of nerves about this. It one. went much better than I thought. Okay. I was fairly. Con- you were like, this is going to be the dark night. I, <laughs> for me. Yeah. I was fairly convinced that this was, because uh, there are two children in play here. One has been to movies, been to movies, and one has not. This is the first movie for your younger child. Yes. Yes. And, you know, I am married to a very optimistic uh, person Mm -hmm. who took this same young child, when she was even younger, to a ballet uh, when she was one and a half years old. Mm -hmm. The ballet began, the curtain opened, and uh, figures appeared on stage. And my then one and a half year old daughter said, "Ballerina!" <laughs> in Carl Weathers' voice from The Mandalorian. And I picked her up like The Mandalorian picked up Baby Yoda in a gunfight and ran. Yeah. And three hours later, rejoined the rest of her family. And she's Where like, were you? "She's like, it wasn't even a ballet. That was what was weird. That's crazy. Yeah." It was just- um, and she's like, "I loved a ballet." I'm like, "It was great. It was a great time." So I, I assumed something similar would happen. Not the case. Mm-hmm. She was frozen, if I may, with either delight or confusion. Unclear at this moment because I did ask her about it again today. And she said, I, she said, I loved it. And I said, what was your favorite part? And she said, the part where I asked mommy, what's happening? <laughs> <laughs> Does your wife like the movie? Uh, we all loved it. Uh-huh. it. It was excellent. All my concerns for nothing. It was actually... Listen, this has been a, we're, it's a very positive episode of The Watch. Really big ups to our, our number one listener, yeah. Bob Iger. Also, big ups Damon Lindelof and Star Wars. Um, franchises are great. TV's great. Yeah. But I, I have to say, with cynicism hat aside, and I try not to wear that hat with my family, that I, I was pretty impressed considering the fact that this, they could have put anything on the screen. They could have just like repackaged like a, like a, off-brand Mr. Magoo rerun and mm. called it Frozen 2 and made a billion dollars. Like, they did not need for this to be well-made and considered. Because kids don't have Rotten Tomatoes yet. <laughs> kids don't believe in cancel culture. Yeah. The thought and care that went into it, and Jennifer Lee, who wrote and directed the first one and wrote and co-directed this one, is really amazing at giving characters motivation, at, at tracking each character's reason for being there. And actually, this is something we talk about a lot, 
why did this exist? And she found the reasons for it to exist in the pieces that were, the, the scraps that were left on the bone, basically, in the first movie. And advancing it forward, it's really uh, inclusive. It's really feminist in a really strong and surprising way for a Disney cartoon. It's funny. I really, really enjoyed it. And we all did. I, w- I was misrepresenting my younger daughter. Her other favorite part was when Anna was crying because it combines her two interests, Anna, and the crying. younger sister, like her, and crying. She finds crying to be so fascinating. Does she cry a lot? No, but she's, I mean, sure, she's two years old, but when other people, like she will be reading a story and it could be a story about anything, someone's birthday party and she'll point to someone like a character half drawn in the background and be like, why he's sad? <laughs> is he, he going to cry? Which makes me think, to bring it full circle, she would love the first season of The Leftovers. It's true. <laughs> I think that that's it's where true. we diverge. Um, but uh, uh, it, was, it, it was a good movie. And, you know, have I, you shown your kids Baby Yoda yet? No, I have not. Can, is that in, in play? I, no. Not even just like, check this out. Well, because then they're going to want to watch it. Like, like, but it's only like 35 minutes a week. <laughs> it's not a runtime <laughs> issue. He, Mando burns people alive. I mean, can, can I can I just end by telling you the one moment right? <laughs> am I allowed to go, show it to them if I babysit? Uh, we'll revisit that off air. Okay. Uh, last moment. So I'm I'm at the movie theater as mentioned. It's nine forty five in the morning on a Sunday, and I am at the uh, concession stand purchasing a, a popcorn for the family to share. Perhaps one of those magic sodas where you can like mix and match. Oh yeah, fun. Yeah, Why yeah. not throw a little vanilla in at the last second? Just a little little surprise. Sure, and. The young woman behind the counter is 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 is, is uh, getting my order, mm-hmm. and she says, um, "What movie are you here to see?" And at that moment, I look to my left and right and realize the three other members of my family are in the restroom, and I am a forty-two-year-old man <laughs> at a ten a.m. buying a medium popcorn at nine forty-five in the morning, and telling a young person I'm there to see Frozen too. <laughs> the length that I went to explain that I have a family were really forty-year-old virgin esque. I was like, I'm here I with have my a chil- beautiful wife. I was like, you love the children the way they are born and then they grow and they have interests. Yeah. You know, and yeah, you yeah. dress them. And everything I said sounded weirder. Yeah. I was like, well, they're in the bathroom because they can't go by themselves <laughs> to the bathroom. Because they are so young. Because they're children. Yeah. And yet here we are. And uh, she was being so nice to me. She's like, oh, I'm sure they'll enjoy the movie. Meanwhile, her hand is reaching underneath yeah, the, the bit, counter. The Queen Elizabeth bell. Yeah. And it's, it's, there's just a button next to the butter marked Amber Alert. And Hooded just, Justice jumps out from behind. It's all in play. Yeah. I've never been more relieved to, to feel the pitter-patter of tiny arms grabbing me from below. Again, not my children. <laughs> other children. Actually, just demons, yeah. Just demons from the underworld okay. and, and one baby Yoda. But uh, it worked out. Great podcast by you today. I really left it all, like David Lindelof in season one, I've left it all on the floor. Up next, it's me and Amanda talking about the last three episodes of The Crown. You got more content in this podcast? Yeah, I get, wow. we, we made a commitment. Save it for and Thanksgiving, And I've broken like 18 man. commitments over the last three months. Wow. Yeah, I've been like, oh, what? we're definitely going to break down all of Peaky Blinders, and then I just never talked about it. That's true. <laughs> that is true. <laughs> uh, what are we doing on Thanksgiving, buddy? What's... uh. What, what, what content's running? Kaya, what's running on Thursday? Kaya and I have talked about it. I mean, what's your avails? None. Right. So, none. I mean, Slim to none. What, when you say, what are we doing? I like to <laughs> consider myself still like the third, the third heat. Yeah, right. I'm the Tracy Jordan of this particular <laughs> girly show. You guys, so you guys will be running something. Uh, TBD. Okay. TBD. 
Wow, that, that maybe it's going to publish Wednesday though, so, not Thursday. Solo mailbag. This is the oh, Jesus. This is the cliffhanger episode, huh? That's right. Okay. Uh, all right. I'll be back with Amanda in just a minute. Thank you, Andy. Great, great job, Baranski. Chris, I'll, I'll get you something from Wawa this week. <laughs> so I'm here with Amanda Dobbins. Hi, Amanda. Hello, Chris. We conclude our discussion of season three of The Crown. Yes. The last three episodes: Dangling Man, Imbroglio. Am I pronouncing that right? I mean, you're. You're the one, you're closer to the Brits than I am. And so. Creed occur. Yeah. Uh, and sort of odd coda to the season, I think maybe actually coming off of um, the middle three episodes, which mm-hmm. are so remarkable, uh, but still quite good. And yeah. I think probably has a lot more to say about what we're going to see in the future rather than the season itself, I think, in terms of its setting up the Charles love life stuff, right? Yes, it's bringing some characters, maybe not to conclusion, but kind of tying up some loose ends with the older generation and setting up the younger generation. I agree that it feels, it's maybe not a weird coda, but it does feel like this season really took off, what, episode four, episode Mm -hmm. five, as we said, once we got to that next generation. And you can kind of see where it's going. And this ends with the Silver Jubilee, which is about the, the queen, but also about the older generation and times passing, there's obviously like the focus on Margaret. It's kind of putting some closure on the themes of the first three seasons, I guess. Mm -hmm. Because when you think about it, this is supposed to be a six-season show. Right. So at the end of season three, we're about halfway. And I think we know from an analysis of the first three seasons that like Peter Morgan is very aware of pacing and he uses the middle of the seasons and he uses all of, um, there is, it's a deliberateness. So, yeah, it's weird, except I think it's just kind of like goodbye, the queen, goodbye, Margaret. Not right. goodbye, but... But a lot of the action is going to be Charles and Camilla and and di- presumably Diana and Thatcher, I yes. would imagine. I can't wait to see their their queen's meetings, their their appointments. Is that what they are? Yeah. Um, so, yeah, we get a little bit of uh, uh, Heath. Uh, we get some more of Wilson. Very sad goodbye for Wilson. We get um, some Saul Bellow references. Yeah. We get some some Polo. Uh, what did you find yourself most drawn to in these last couple of episodes? Was it the Charles stuff or was it the sort of conclude or the kind of end of this one phase of Margaret and Elizabeth together? For me, it's the Charles. For mm-hmm. me, it's moving forward because you can you can both see where the show is going, which is just like an, an essential part of storytelling and TV. It doesn't really, it feels both familiar and that he's going through a lot of the same things that the Queen's character goes through, but it's also kind of new. As opposed to some of the, the Margaret and Queen stuff is, we've seen it before. And, you know, we haven't seen Margaret, like, in the dire straits that she's in in the last episode, per se. But this this old struggle of the number one and the number two and how they interact together, it's it, it's familiar territory. So, so for me, I like the Charles stuff just because I see where the show is going. Yeah. Uh, what was it like? Because that's probably the stuff that you start to have the most personal attachment to as like stuff that you've read about the most, right? Like is mm-hmm. the that era. What was it like to see the kind of origin stories of that take place? Especially the, the Camilla stuff? Mm-hmm. Yeah, so this show does not like Camilla, huh? So does that, is that your takeaway? I don't know. Do you think this is like a positive Camilla? I mean, obviously the characters in the show well, don't Well, I thought like that the Camilla. way that they like did that, that, they told that story was a little odd in places. So like, was that Mountbatten, did he like prompt Camilla to get into it with Charles or is he just like, check her out? I think that Mountbatten did play a large role in helping Charles um, 
discover himself sure. and find his confidence with women and encouraging him to sow his wild oats. I think that he was a meddler. Uh-huh. I mean, I don't know whether he legit like set Charles and Camilla up. Probably not. I think he was sending a lot more, um, quote, aristocratic women yes. Charles's way. I mean, yes. like the thing is, is that we're not seeing all of the other women. That so Charles there were had. a lot of other women. Oh, yeah. yeah okay. He's definitely going through them at a pretty rapid clip, according really? to— Really? My basis here is um, the Diana Chronicles by Tina Brown, which I is— one of my favorite books about celebrity and is also a, a great text for this era. But yeah, I mean, he's the Prince of Wales, so... they make him seem like a like a really sweet shut-in who's reading Saul Bellow. And I think it's a little bit of both. He is apparently sensitive. He writes long notes. He is kind of... And reads a lot and is not necessarily like a giant personality. Mm-hmm. But I think he is also the son of Philip, and it was the 70s sure. in London. So I think he was he was doing okay, is my understanding. As was Anne. Yes. Uh, so I did not know that there was a love square yes. going on there. Yes. Is that, does that This is all tracks. This is all apparently very true. I actually, the only thing that I am not 100% sure is true, and I think is probably, they've taken some license, is the queen and Mount, the queen mother. And Mountbatten being in cahoots, summoning the families right. to be like, you got to take care of this. But legend has it, and again, this is from the Tina Brown book that Camilla definitely was chasing Andrew Parker Bowles for a while and kind of playing Charles against Andrew Parker Bowles. And everyone does believe that Andrew Parker Bowles is the person that she was really infatuated with sure. at that time. And their wedding was announced, their engagement was announced in the newspapers before he actually proposed. Really? Yeah. I. In, I believe it's her parents who placed the announcement. They're just kind of like, we got to get this on. So I don't know whether, I don't know who was pushing her parents to do it, but that that is the legend. Yeah. So all of this really is that they're all pawns and they're kind of being told what's appropriate and what's not is very much true to, to history or at least gossip um, of the times. Also, this speech when Prince Charles is like, when Prince Charles is just yelling at his mother and he's just like, are you mad because she's not intact? Right. So that's a real thing. He was he had to marry a virgin. Like, oh my god. That was a real, real part of the whole looking for a bride situation. And in the 70s in England. In England, there was basically no, no one no. except for Princess Diana. You know, it was like the the pill and, yeah. and the sexual revolution. Yeah. But that was somehow still part of the requisite to to be Charles's wife, which is nuts. With, with Dangling Man specifically, yeah. I thought uh this is another l- lovely episode. So a Dangling Man, is the Derek Jacobi stuff in Dang- Dangling Man? It's in Dangling Man. Right. And then his funeral oh, the letters and, and, stuff. The, and the yeah. letters and kind of the fallout yes. is in Brolio. It's, yes. ki- it's kind of a two-parter. But but when he is, it's his, it's his last episode, yeah, is Dangling Man. Okay. Because it's like, it's very interesting how they... You know, the mirroring that they do is so is so exquisite. You know, like even Charles and the even the Camilla Andrew Parker Bull stuff sort of mirroring Margaret and Tony mm-hmm. in the last episode. This idea that people would be drawn to the thing that's bad for them. But I I was curious about um the Duke of Windsor stuff the most because he was also a pretty like complicated figure. It wasn't like he was just like a rugged individualist. I mean, don't forget the season two episode that's just about how he was a Nazi sympathizer. Right. And maybe not saying. even like sympathizer is possibly the most generous word that you could use to describe his relationship to the Nazi regime. Right. 
Yeah. I mean, that, that's, that's a thing that happened. That's like, and I think that's definitely, you're supposed to remember that when you're uh, looking at Elizabeth's reaction mm-hmm. to him. I think the fact that Prince Charles doesn't really seem to care about that is also supposed to indicate something to you about kind of Prince Charles and what he's And also just like the degree of r- ridiculous insulation these people live in where it's like they've only ever been in these palaces and in, mm-hmm. you know, these situations where they're not actually in contact with the real world, much to Charles's chagrin. Yes. You know, much, much to his probably everlasting regret that he doesn't have like a life of consequence and that, you know, like he says, even dying would give your life meaning. Right. And you have to keep in mind that even Prince Charles, his entire life has been consumed with this this Elizabeth. And a thing that she returns to or the character returns to is um, this idea that it wasn't supposed to be her. Mm -hmm. And that because the Duke of Windsor abdicated, abdicated, her father was put in a position that he wasn't supposed to be in and she wasn't, she was put in a position she wasn't supposed to be in. But that happened like, in her consciousness, in mm-hmm. real time. She watched all of that happen. So she has, like, one set of, you know, damage and concerns to deal with. But Charles is just, since he was born. He, right. He, that's, like, he has just been this the future This is what he king. was going to be. Yeah, yeah, and he's had not even a taste of life outside of the bubble because he has always been so in the center of things and also because they're so anxious about duty and tradition and all of the things that were, like, thrown aside during the abdication. So did Camilla love him? Was Camilla into him? I mean, who can say? Tina Brown? <laughs> uh, you know, it's it, it's so interesting to watch it now. Number one, watching these episodes and him talking about, you know, waiting for his life to start and also how that coincides to his mother dying. Mm-hmm. Just, you know, that's some, that's some Greek tragedy shit sure. for you right there. But it, it, that still hasn't happened. This was like I know. Years I know. Ago. That's the thing. That's My like Lord, this guy has been yeah. living living in a petrified princedom, which is really wild. But um, so obviously, and the other thing is that he and Camilla are married now and yeah. have been married for some for some time, and never really kind of gave each other up. I don't know. It does. Where's Andrew Parker Bowles now? I don't know whether he's still alive. I oh. believe that he. They divorced at some point. Polo yeah, accident. <laughs> and, and then he he was like at the wedding of Charles and Camilla, just like very happily there, being wow. like, isn't this exciting? I mean, British rich people are very strange. I, I think that this is true to events that in the 60s or 70s, uh, Camilla was focused on Andrew Parker Bowles. Uh-huh. Everybody was. Apparently he was. I think he also gets short shrift. He's just in like this. the Drake of the polo scene in England of yeah, royal polo. But I don't really think that he is getting his full due in terms of charisma mm-hmm. and appeal on this on this show in the way that the dad from Broadchurch is yeah, not bringing it. Exactly. Yeah. yeah. Well, it's not even that. And I guess they do show him on the polo field and maybe I just don't really interpret like polo's pretty dumb. Yeah, but I guess all those guys are sort of pricks anyway because yeah. like when they show up at the bar and they're he's just like no, you know, I'm unattached tonight and yeah. he's just like but I'm you know, I'm going to go find somebody and he finds Anne. Yeah. Uh, Anne has just been... Throwing heat. Unbelievable. Yeah. she's a, She gets the Margaret energy in a lot of ways. Yes. And it is, it's a breath of fresh air to have someone just being like, I, And even the, the things that, the, that I really love how what the crown does is like the moments where you're like, this should probably be too much. Like Anne driving around listening to David Bowie. Yeah. I was like, it's pretty awesome. Yeah. I mean, she also, she commits to the singing, which yeah. I really appreciate at, at top volume. I think that what, if the, the three episodes that sort of conclude the season have anything that it, it, I while the minor strike and the power cuts and the elections are kind of in the background there 
it doesn't feel like the earlier episodes in which there's a sort of a historical event that explains the characters. These are characters explaining the historical events. Did you notice that change at all? Not entirely. I did. I guess I noticed that major, major seismic events like the minor strike and sort of Heath being prime minister yeah. were definitely Downplayed. sidelined. Yes. I mean, Heath is just like literally playing Beethoven the whole time. That's what they give him yeah. to do, which on the one hand, I, I don't think he was a particularly effective prime minister. So what yeah. else are you supposed to explore? But it was, it was cool to see Arthur Scargill like, get, get, get some screen time. Yeah. Though, can, I, can I just do the... He, so he's playing, I think it's in Imbroglio when he is just kind of doing the soundtrack. Uh-huh. And he's he's playing the Moonlight Sonata, which is a wonderful piece of music. But I just need music supervisors to learn more classical music. It's like we get Beethoven. And to their credit, it's, so Beethoven will be Moonlight Sonata and or the Symphony Number no. 7. Yeah. And then there's Claire de Lune. There's and just then there's so much like Claire de Lune. Mozart's Requiem. Yeah. And that's like it. That is apparently the only pieces of music that music supervisors know. And I just, I think we have all have Spotify. There is also an experience, though, that I've been having recently where I've been trying to listen to more classical music, both to like open mm-hmm. my mind, but to chill, chill me out a little bit. And sometimes it'll be that I think it's kind of Baroque super harpsichordy, just like six instrument classical music. Okay. And I'm like, this is driving me insane. Which like, dung, 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 yeah, I don't mean to, like, I, I, I'm pretty basic. I also really like Beethoven, <laughs> but I think we can expand be- be- beyond sure. those, like, two pieces of Beethoven. I'm not saying everyone needs to go into full, like, deep nerd Bach broke. Yeah, right. That would be overwhelming. It's just... We can't do Claire de Lune in every single episode of television. So we, classical music is to us what the minor strike is to the crowd, yeah. where we've just dismissed it out yeah, of it. people hand. are not really <laughs> thinking through it. Uh, the minor strike is something I actually have read quite a bit about just because I've read the books of David Peace, who mm-hmm. wrote a series of novels set from 74 through 83 about um, a serial killer in Yorkshire. The Yorkshire Ripper, oh. uh, but it's also a lot of it is about the strikes. And then he also wrote a tome called GB84, which is about Thatcher and the strikes and and all that. And it, so I've read a lot about that. It was interesting to see it shot through the lens of uh, the royals because you, they are r- rarely remarked upon in yeah. these other books. Well, I was going to ask, has, is there anything in those books that indicates to you that the queen... Was a a crypto lefty? Even like one sentence of thought being like their demands seem reasonable? Nothing. Yeah. Yeah. I thought that that was a liberty. Uh I don't know whether it was a liberty. You do read some of the biographies of the queen and they're obviously like biographies of the queen. So they're like in like big royals pocket. Mm -hmm. But where from time to time, I think particularly with Suez Canal, she kind of was like, what are you doing yeah. to Eden? Which is like essentially is the limit of what she is constitutionally allowed to do is being like, are you sure? Mm-hmm. So I don't think it's unprecedented, but I don't really know that they earned her being like, this seems, I'm on the side of the yeah. miners, which is basically Universal what they do. Basic and income, then they yeah. don't revisit it again. Yeah. But I think that, that that, I wonder whether or not that is in service of Margaret's speech at the end. You know, and we could just kind of talk yeah. about these three episodes yeah, yeah, together. Yeah, yeah, but yeah. like Margaret's sort of like, this is why we're, the monarchy matters mm-hmm. to paper over the cracks, right? And to provide this like this ideal and this thing of conf- this projection of confidence, so that people don't just fall into the pit of despair, right? I think you can't have that without having it be like, and the person who's 
projecting this ideal also would like minors to have like a living wage, right. you know? Who isn't like the worst version and is also relatable. Because you would assume they would be like, shut up. Yes. You know, we believe that there is a divine order to humanity. And so we don't care what happens to minors. Yes. You know, and yeah. also I waited a week to go to Abervan, you know? Right. right, exactly. There is a similar, they give Philip a speech, I think, in episode 10, mm-hmm. which is just, and it's about reading the news every morning. And what a disaster it is, and it's about the politicians. And I mean, it's that's clearly like I wrote a Brexit speech and I just put it sure. in Philip's mouth. Sure. And the parallel really works, and it is true and nice to be reminded that politicians and governments and people have been making a massive thing f- <coughs> since the beginning and yet of time. We've managed to sustain it. You know, we've managed right. to sustain things. But it is also it it, it makes Philip quite sympathetic. And if we know anything about Philip, it's uh, that he manages to uh, say something racist at every opportunity. <laughs> um, whatever his good yeah. intentions might be. So, I, yeah, I think that's perceptive. It's a rosy view of them. I mean, Philip is of essentially course. like, I was a wild guy who got my shit together through group therapy and I love spaceships and polar. <laughs> and you're just like, okay, this guy seems great. I mean, Tobias Menzies, I love him. But, it's like, but yeah. also, he's probably like, my favorite movie is Zulu. <laughs> <laughs> and I love reading Kipling and like, yeah. Yeah. And they also, you know, they give Helena Bottom Carter as Margaret that just like tremendous speech about the power of the mm-hmm. crown. And also the queen and her sister have this like lovely moment about sisterhood and all of this stuff. But I'm just like, well, I've just watched this person be a, a disaster of a, in Margaret. Yeah. Just like. A drunk, terrible lady in an abusive relationship, which it's not her fault for, like, an entire season, yeah, maybe right. three seasons. Yeah. And then she's like, here, let me articulate. Right. <laughs> and let me just kind of, oh, the clouds will open and I will have, like, a greater understanding yeah. of humanity and what we all need. So, yeah, it's television. I have to say, I think uh, Helen Bottom Carter is fantastic Th- in that That's the thing. Scene. You could say it's television. You can say they're they're gilding the lily a little bit. Mm-hmm. Guild away. Yeah. If it's Olivia Coleman and Helena Bottom Carter with that kind of writing, like, it's just kind of, it's just kind of best in class. It's, it, and and even... Coleman doing what she's doing where she is playing a character who has been stripped of her ability to have an individuality mm-hmm. and has to essentially subsume herself into a role rather than into a personality. And yet still finding these moments of frailty, but also hostility, you know, with Charles mm-hmm. and, you know, being kind of on this on this track that's going to take her to a place where she is she's like her mother. Like she, you know, she is like, she can't help it. Right. But at the same time, like every once in a while, just like that eye twitch or that look and finding the nuance in that Queen Elizabeth look, like the Jubilee sequence of her walking through the hall and walking out and into the carriage and like that just static shot on her face and her like looking behind Charles. It's like, that's just like amazing acting. Yes. And it's also, there is, it's all of the entire season's work of the anger and the, towards Charles, as you mentioned, or the resentment, really. Yeah. That's what it is. And kind of a lot of the opaqueness that she is cultivating. I think for a few episodes towards the beginning, part of it was just a transition from Claire Foy to Olivia Coleman. Uh, but part of it was also, I I was like, I don't really feel like I have a handle on her character mm-hmm. in the way that I did with Claire Foy. Because Claire Foy can just, like, honestly, is, like, telepathic, I sure. think, in terms of you just put the camera on her and you might as well be reading her she's like, her mind. She's communicating so and, much, yeah. And there is a a wall 
or something that's that's drawn with Olivia Coleman. And at first I was like, is this is this just two different people? But I think it's really it's purposeful. It's part of the character that this is a character who is working towards that inaccessibility. And the mask slips every once in a while, which is what's so amazing about various moments and various conversations with people throughout this this season. I just want to point out that the when she goes to visit the Duke of Windsor and gives the whole speech about, you know, I have resented you my whole life, but maybe now I'm grateful for it and he falls asleep. That's like the second spe- speech she gives to like a historical figure who falls asleep. Yes. Which is like a, <laughs> is maybe a theme that even like her own self-knowledge is just like falling on, like no one wants to hear it yeah. to, to quote herself. But it all does come together in that amazing scene where you can watch her trying to be the person on the postage stamp. Right. And right. and all of the different threads and problems are shining Have through. you seen footage of that Jubilee? A little bit. Yeah. It's pretty weird. So that's 70. Well, I was going to ask you. It's 77, the year the year of Chris Ryan. Oh, wow. Yeah. That's what they were celebrating. Yeah. So I was just wondering whether you felt like it was an accurate portrayal of the world as you know it. Well, I'd be curious to see where, whether it just picks up the next day, essentially, yeah. like when, when season, because I believe season four is either done or is it, in being edited or like, I think they shot all the Olivia Coleman seasons together. They did, is my understanding. Yeah, because there's stuff that, uh, shout out to the British tabloids mm-hmm. has, I guess, quote unquote, spoiled, although it's history. But they were like, watch them shoot this scene from history. And right. I was like, fuck. They've released a few stills as well, particularly of Diana stuff. Yeah. But they haven't cast Diana yet or they just haven't they announced have. it? They have announced Oh, who her. is it? It's, uh, it's an unknown who looks a lot like Diana. Really? Yes. Oh, so it's not like Florence Pugh with a wig. No, which is good. That yeah. would be really weird. If, I mean, maybe, well, I guess Florence could. Pew could be like seasons five and season six, Diana. Okay. Yeah, but yeah, yeah not Wait, yet. And they've ca- cast Imelda Staunton for five and six. Allegedly. I mean, they right. haven't confirmed that. But if I had to guess, I think season four, I think we do know it'll be Maggie Thatcher because yeah. they have said as much. I hope the clash or like the sex pistols yeah, too. But I think it'll probably start in 79, which is both when Maggie Thatcher uh, becomes prime minister and also, can I, can I spoil history? Sure. I mean, if you really don't want history spoiled, like, hit the fast forward button, but um, Mountbatten is not with us forever. Yeah. That, and the, that's also you, in The Daily Mail was like, check out this yeah. still from the set of Mountbatten getting killed. Well, yeah. yeah. Well, but you know, there's a reason that you cast Charles Dance as Mountbatten. Yeah. You can't, you got to have someone to really bring home that tragedy. Yeah. So, I, but I think that those happen within the same year. Okay. So I imagine it'll start in 79, which is kind of like starting this year with Wilson and Churchill. Right. Can I give one note about Wilson? Sure. I don't really feel like we got enough of like the relationship between Wilson and the Queen, or Wilson and Marcia, who is his personal like yelling at him yeah. lady, uh, and was uh, <laughs> the lady who's just like grow some balls. She is his personal yelling at him lady. Uh, she was apparently like basically an assistant worked within the cabinet there of, of, of Wilson's administrations. It's funny. I was just listening to this really really great polit- podcast called Politics Today, which is kind of re- released in conjunction with the London Review of Books, and they just did a whole pod about the similarities between this con- current British election mm-hmm. and the 74 one mm-hmm. uh, when Wilson won with a minority and then is out six months later. Yes. Um, I, who replaces Wilson? So it's not Thatcher yet, right? She comes in later. Um, after Wilson the second time, it's apparently James Callahan. Okay. James okay. Callahan probably not going to be on the, the crown. 
Well, so he's the he's 1976 to 1979. He might get like one scene. Okay. And then yeah, Margaret Thatcher is is May 1979. And I would just assume that they would start there. Right. But the thing about Wilson is, in addition to being a pretty big deal historical figure, they make such a thing at the end of them having a nice relationship mm-hmm. and he invites her to dinner at Downing Street, which only— She invites her to dinner. Oh, she invites herself She's to like, dinner. I'd love right. to go. And he's like, holy shit. Which she only ever did for Winston Churchill. And that's apparently— True to life, they really did have a lovely relationship. There's a Peter Morgan play called The Audience, mm-hmm. which was in 2013, and it's structured. It's just those audiences between of between the Queen and the Prime Ministers, and it just goes. It starts with Winston Churchill, and it goes all the way through. Okay. Um, and who played the Queen in the play? Helen Mirren. Yeah. And it's great. It's really delightful. But one of the main takeaways of the audience is that she and Wilson really loved each other. Yeah. That is that's the warmest part of it. And they go to about moral. And I would have liked more of that. Yeah. I but I you know, I know that they have a lot to do and I guess they're setting up the next generation, but it did it did kind of feel fast forwarded. It at is the fast. End. It, it, you wonder whether or not like obviously this I think they they must have a pretty comprehensive 60 episode plan. Mm-hmm. So they can't follow some of the bliss that other shows maybe sometimes are like, "Oh, turns out everybody likes Aaron Paul. Let's keep him on the show forever." You know, like <laughs> they can't just do Six more Wilson episodes. Right. And I think that it's so perfectly crafted that they're not going to, they wouldn't deviate from that anyway just to have like a few more fun episodes. So I guess I wanted to ask a couple of just sort of broad strokes questions about this season for you. Okay. Who was your like non-Olivia Coleman MVP of the season? I think you have to give it to Josh O'Connor. Yes. Who is tremendous. Yes. And I was rereading the Guardian piece that came out before the mm-hmm. season that was like behind the scenes, which you had referenced. And I think, I think it's Helena Bonham Carter who observes that that Josh O'Connor will be like a net positive for like actual Prince Charles. Yes, and that people will be more sympathetic and rooting for Prince Charles because Josh O'Connor is so likable right. and so good in this role right. and brings like a lot of sympathy to who is otherwise like. Kind of a, a like annoying, a spineless. I mean, yeah, he just right. rolls yeah. up. He drives away <laughs> from the Navy. He's like, I'm in the Navy and there are a lot of rules, but whatever. Yeah. I'm going to see my mom right now just to march in and scream at her. Yes. Which, queen or not, it's not the most respectful interaction. Yes. Yeah. I mean, I understand that he's frustrated. He has reason it's to sort be of the opposite of we stand a queen. Right? <laughs> <laughs> I'm just like yelling and throwing yeah. baseless accusations at her. But he is so charming, and and it also is written with a lot of empathy. Mm-hmm. So I think he's amazing. Obviously, Princess Anne is just a like fan favorite. The the Dame Maggie Smith. The, it's the Dowager Countess Award. And what's what does Anne have an exciting next couple of decades? I don't know. It's so funny. My husband was asking me that as well. Everyone's rooting for Anne. What do you define as exciting in the context of the reference? Like, what? Well, does she have like a Margaret type kind of next couple of decades? Does she like go on tour with Bowie? Like, what happens? No, she doesn't go on tour with Bowie, unfortunately, which is, um, but she's not as like depressing as Margaret, okay. for lack of a better word. She is as solid. She becomes like an international, like Olympian level horse show jumper. Okay. And gets married, has some kids, I think gets married again. She just kind of is like, I'm going to live my life. Okay. 
So I don't think she has, like, a lot of attention. Someone was asking on Twitter if there are any books to be read about Princess Anne, which is so nice because everyone really, really likes this character. The Amanda think, Dobbins Lending Library? Yeah, I think the answer is not really. Yeah. But I think that's what Anne would want. Right. So we should feel good about it. Who else? Who else besides Josh O'Connor? Tobias Menzies. Really nice job. Amazing stuff by him. Of non-racist Philip behavior. <laughs> yeah. Um, and I think... not even rehabilitates because this character is supposed to be evolving there like the season two is really about elizabeth and philip and philip being a real dickhead and that last episode in season two um is supposed to be like a restart yeah right right and this is true to it and i think he is very smart and funny and gets like a lot of you know, the witty lines and also gets some let me explain it to you speeches sure, because sure. he can handle them. Um, but as you said, he really just is a guy who like loves the moon and <laughs> like self-help and yeah. starts a center for spirituality. I don't know. It's it's a win for him. Um, I thought the last episode with Helena Bonham Carter was was quite great. You yes. know what I mean? I thought the Margaretology one, I think these, you have the same thing with your, like, the Kirby ghost is all over there mm-hmm. and you're kind of getting over it. But I also really thought that was, like, a great episode to explain jet setting and ah. just, like, these people who are kind of so bored with life that all they can do is extravagantly travel. Yeah. But I just loved, like, her train to Scotland and then... Well, Anne and Colin are also in, is that Jamaica? Where are they? Like, That's Mystique, Mystique. The famous Mystique, okay. which is a private uh, Caribbean island, I believe, owned by Colin Tennant or purchased by Colin Tennant. And I think then, uh, you know, other people own homes on it. Okay. That, Who's Colin, is that Colin Tennant? Yes. The guy in there? Yeah, yeah. like a, a rich friend of the, of the royals. Okay. And I believe that Kate and William and the current royals like still go there from time to time because you can control a certain amount of media attention. Not all of it, as Obviously we learned not, from Margaret. Yeah. Can I ask you a question about the Scotland scene, though? Sure. Like, the whole pool party scene? Yeah. What time of year is it? I mean, whatever the hottest time of year it's uh, ever like, been in Scotland. Sure, but I don't understand. <laughs> I don't understand what time of day and what time it is because like people are wearing wool coats and also bikinis. And they're swimming yeah. and they're lounging and Well, fur. I assume in Scotland in the summer, it's like, light until like 10 o'clock, right? Sure. So maybe there's some evening wear being worn at the pool, even though it's it's like, we think it's like 2 o'clock. Yeah, and I understand that like Princess Margaret wears a fur wherever because she's Princess Margaret, but she's talking there with her friend, and, yeah. and they're like, we gotta go buy bathing trunks for, uh, for Roddy. Yeah. So then they all go, and then suddenly everyone's in wool coats. Yes, and yes. It's like, you were just in a bikini. <laughs> I, don't know. I have some questions. It's, it may, Scotland's like the Bay Area. Yeah. It could just be every other block, it's different. <laughs> Um, what else can we say about this season? I mean, I think for me, as someone who didn't have like a tremendous attachment to the first two, this one really spoke to me. And I thought that the standout episodes, specifically the Prince of Wales one, were among the best that the show's done. Um, but I can understand why for people who are like very attached to the Foy, Kirby, Matt Smith era, that like this was a departure and like it took some getting used to. But it definitely is like quite a sta- statement and testament to the stability and, and sustainability of the show. I completely agree. It's a different energy. It's a middle-aged energy. Yeah. And things are both a little more settled and also the things that are different are 
I think we wish they would rather not be, which is like an interesting meta commentary on sure. the show, which is also about like stability and establishment and yeah. people not wanting change. Um, I, if you miss, I too miss Kirby. I too miss Claire Foy <laughs> in a way, but I think probably ultimately the experiment works, mm-hmm. which is a pretty remarkable thing to think about. We're just going to recast our entire Everyone's gone. Everyone who made this amazing. And this show, I mean, the writing is incredible. Obviously, there's like a production design and, you know, de- historical level, detail yeah. And, yeah. and everything. But it doesn't work without the cast. Mm-hmm. And to just chuck a thing that's working and start all over is a big gamble. And they pull it off. Yeah. I think it really does help. It It is a transitional time, I guess, in all of the characters' lives as well as, like, in the context of the show. Mm-hmm. I really feel like once you've got Gillian Anderson next season, you've got Diana in the mix, uh, you've got the 80s, and it'll just be ridiculous. And it, the rise of television as this as this celebrity-making and breaking force, yeah. Yes, absolutely. And then, but you have to wonder about how much of it they'll stick to it being shot through the lens of the Queen's perspective and what it always, because I think for the, with a few exceptions, and even in the Prince of Wales episode, the, the denouement really is her saying no one cares. Mm-hmm. If it's if it's always going to be related back to Elizabeth, and we talked about this, that it's called the crown, not the queen, and right. that's an important distinction. But whether how much of the Charles and Diana stuff, I, obviously a lot of it will be, but how free will it, will the show be to kind of go explore that? I think that it will actually be a lot more about the queen, just because you have both Diana and Margaret Thatcher rising at the same time, two major major personalities mm-hmm. who are essentially a threat to the queen as the 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 top dog right and the person who is getting the most attention and the woman who is getting the most attention and i think that there was definitely a current of that to her relationship with margaret thatcher mm-hmm. and that is definitely the the diana drama for all of the the camilla love triangle you know and all of diana's personal struggles was really about diana being way more popular than the royal family right. and she is just like an international superstar that they don't know how to deal with at all. And she is uh, overshadowing everybody else. And that's very tough for everyone. It's definitely, Charles doesn't handle it well, but I think the queen starts to feel threatened by it. Mm-hmm. And that becomes, it's she's both a threat to the queen and I guess a threat to the idea of the crown as they have traditionally understood it. I think that by necessity puts the queen back in center stage. And there's several, over the next coming years, there's several major for lack of a better term, set pieces that mm-hmm. I'll be really curious to see what they do with the royal wedding. Yes. And Diana's death. You know, yes. Like, what? Do, how do they approach those? Are those phone calls in the middle of the night? The way they, or is it going to be the way they did the Jubilee where we get these private moments before the televised thing? Right. Or is it going to be something where they're just like, we're going for broke. We're showing you the whole thing. I'm excited to find out. Me too. All right, Amanda, thank you so much for talking about The Crown with me. It was my pleasure. Uh, and we will be back, uh, I think, on Wednesday. Uh, but yeah, check out if you if you guys if you guys haven't seen The Crown and if you've listened to this for some reason. <laughs> watch The Crown. Watch it's The Crown. Good. Yeah, later. Later.